Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to L for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page and the link is in the show notes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%, that impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Yeah, Tony, I don't know if you had an official blurb, if you wanted to like introduce who you were and maybe what, in a nutshell, maybe parking reform is all about. It's just so funny because it's such a kind of... I think it's something that that people don't think about a lot. And then once you see it, though, it's very hard to not see it. Yeah, I'm Tony Jordan. I live in Portland, Oregon. I was working as a, I have a degree in politics and I'd spent some time as a union organizer and I was working as a software developer when I came across this book called The High Cost of Free Parking about 13 years ago in 2010. And I read it. And it really shocked me learning about the impact of all the this car parking infrastructure we have. And so I started applying, had some opportunities to apply the, my, the organizing training I'd had to trying to change the rules in the city where I live around parking and had some success. And then for the last several years, I've been building a national slash international organization to help other people integrate this issue and act and reforms around this issue in into their work because it is an issue that that touches a lot of things yeah there was a great quote or an extract on your website which was the idea that there's three parking spaces for every car or automobile and you've got 260 million automobiles (laughs) and that's probably a low estimate this is a big there's a little bit of controversy around this right because people ask like how many parking spaces are there in the united states at least and the answer is no one knows like it's too many to count three is a very likely and conservative estimate the estimate goes up to seven or eight. It depends on how much of the road, the curbside parking you count in remote areas or in suburbs. Because theoretically, right, there's 
room for cars to park everywhere and but most of it is unused so depending on how much of that kind of suburban and rural curb space you count the number can go up to seven or eight spaces and in certain localities like resort communities and things it can be more than the there could be 10 parking spaces per resident in in a place like jackson hole wyoming or <laughs> i think it was 18 actually there it's crazy yeah we had a reddit post ages ago requesting that we talk about urban design and the sort of effects on mental health. I mean, we did a start, at least, with an episode, Are Cities Good for Your Mental Health? But there's a... So there's many different sort of factors, like you said, that the parking reform is like the... You you throw the stone in the pond and you get all the ripples, right? There was a thing in there, lower-income households subsidise the parking costs of their more affluent neighbours. How does that happen then? Great question. So we know that on average, the more cars are owned and are driven more by higher income, more affluent households. That's just, of course, people with lower incomes do own cars. A lot of times they have to for work or because they're displaced. But on the whole, the number of cars per household and the amount driven is greater. So where this really comes into effect is in situations where you have an apartment building, mixed incomes, or even just a neighborhood where actually maybe some people are fortunate enough that they can get by without a car if they have a choice. The other fact, right, we know that there's this idea that, oh, you can live without a car if you can afford to live in the right place. But we know that certainly there are a lot of people who live in places that are not easy to get around without cars, but they can't afford or they can't drive a car for medical or other reasons, legal reasons, whatever. So, When you're in a situation like that and you're a household that can't afford a car or can't afford two cars, the average number of parking spaces required for housing in the United, for multifamily housing is around one and a half to two spaces per household. So if you want to build an apartment building almost everywhere in the United States, you have to build one to two parking spaces for every apartment. So even if we know that low-income households own cars, that rate of ownership is less. So they're much more likely to be a single-car household. A renter household is much more likely to be a single-car household than a homeowner household, for example. Someone has to pay for that parking, right? The parking is not cheap. A surface parking space might only cost a couple thousand dollars to construct, but it does have an oper- it takes up a lot of space. A structured parking, like above-ground parking garage, might cost tens of thousands, twenty to thirty, forty thousand dollars per space to construct, and a below-ground parking structure costs maybe fifty to hundred percent more than the above-ground one. So when you think about that, this could be hundreds of dollars in additional carrying cost and rents that need to be. Someone has to pay that. I guess if it's subsidized, then we should really consider whether we're spending our subsidies for housing in the right way (laughs) on on car storage versus homes. But if it's not subsidized, then someone has to make up that cost. And that means that if there's two parking spaces for every household in your apartment complex and you only own one car, you're still paying for two. And someone else is going to be using that space. You're you're subsidizing. And if you don't own any cars, you're almost always still paying for a parking space. And that's in your housing. It's also in every transaction you make. A grocery store has a parking lot. It's not free, but no one ever pays to park in it. So every time you, if you take a bus to a grocery store, you're paying to upkeep that parking lot that you're never using. Yeah. Wow. You can see almost, I don't know if this happens, do people occupy parking spaces? I was just imagining getting really angry at a 
negative space. It's just an empty car parking space. It's a wild thing, right? Like it's almost about what you're not seeing. It's an absence in some yeah. ways. I read this book in 2010. It's by a professor named Donald Shoup at UCLA. Um, he's retired now. He's, he's in his 80s. He started studying this topic back in, in the late 70s. He looked into, he was an econo- economics professor and he looked into if you pay for someone, if you provide free parking at work or if you pay for people's parking at work, do they drive more or less than if they have to pay? And pretty obvious, I think it's pretty, seems pretty logical. If people had to pay to park at work, they were much more likely to carpool. And so he just started digging into this and he started looking at why we have these all these parking spaces. And before I read the book, I walked around like almost everyone else and I just assumed parking was just, I don't know, was created on the sixth day. I don't know how it got there. (laughs) And when I had a car, I haven't had a car for a number of years, but when I had a car, of course, I didn't want to pay for parking. And of course I wanted, I I assumed and felt entitled to it being available wherever I, I went. But once I read this book and I realized that, no, this wasn't necessarily natural. There's these whole, in every, in most cities, zoning codes or bylaws, there are tables. Sometimes they're 10, 15 pages long of every type of business, every type of land use. Like some, they, they vary. Sometimes they're less, less specific, but sometimes they get down to a taxidermy shop versus a laundromat versus an electronics repair store. And there's a ratio for each of these businesses that says this business needs one parking space for every 300 square feet. This business needs one parking space for every two barber chairs, plus one for every employee. They're completely different. And like you could spend, I could talk probably literally for an hour about just the ridiculous and arbitrary ratios. And that has led to our urban design being sprawled and isolating and not walkable. Tony, is this true even for cities, the very few United States? that actually have decent mass transit, whether it's New York or Boston, or is it only the mass of cities that have utterly inadequate mass transit? So yes and no. It's, for example, New York, in Manhattan, you can build things and you don't have to build parking spaces. That was since the 70s, I think. Prior to the 70s, you did have to build parking spaces. But in the in various boroughs, it's complicated. There are parking mandates still that exist in, in Brooklyn and Staten Island and other places. And other big cities like Boston, for example. So usually it's actually pretty common for cities of all sizes in the United States, at least, to not have parking mandates in the core business district. And that might be defined as a fairly large area, like what you think of the downtown, or it might just be like the old main street. And that's because, and that happened a long time ago. And that was, I think people, cities started to realize that, that there was a period of freeway building and suburbanization, and it led to this requirement. People thought they needed parking in downtown. So they started tearing down the downtown. They started destroying it, right? Like literally every other building would be torn down for a parking lot. And I think that cities woke up a little bit to that and realized they were going to completely, some of them went farther than others, right? Like completely crater their downtown. There's at least, we have a list of about 46 North American cities of various sizes all over in every corner of the country that have mostly in the last five years said, this is enough and we're going to actually repeal these parking mandates for 
mostly every land use for the whole city. And that's a trend that is fortunately starting. People are starting to wake up to this and repeal it. But in, it, until five years ago, it was overwhelming. And it's still obviously 46 for the 20,000 or whatever jurisdictions there are in the United States is a drop in the bucket. But there, like there is, it's overwhelmingly the case that if you want to build something or start a business, you're probably going to have to buy, build, or rent parking for your customers and employees. And the point being that if you didn't have to do this, the land could be used for something else. I think I watched the video of the guy, the author that you mentioned, he had this quote, land is expensive for housing and free for parking. And you wonder why we have a problem. So exactly. So it's that idea that if this land could be being used for something else entirely, it could be as the city's uh, mental health episode we did, it was very much about green space, having access to it has all kinds of benefits and potentially, I guess, if you didn't have parking, you could have more green spaces. What kind of stuff are you angling for or what are the kind of maybe some case examples or things that you've experienced around maybe the issues of the kind of environmental or mental health perspectives? Almost anything is more pleasing and useful than a car parking lot. I live across the street from a parking lot that's for a bar, and most of the time it's empty. And it's like, sometimes it's used for recreation. During the pandemic, people were using it quite a bit for roller skating because the businesses were closed that it serves. But it's hot, and it makes a lot of rainwater come off when it rains. It floods my street, and it's, it's not pretty to look at. So I think, yeah, converting them to one of the one of the few things about the pandemic that was one of the very few things that was you could look at silver lining was it did lead to a lot of people rethinking how what could be in these spaces instead. We saw a lot of because it was necessary to be outside, a lot of repurposing of car parking as space for people to eat or meet. And we could obviously there's questions of how equitable and where that went, how that was rolled out. But the idea that all of a sudden people realized, man, this space. I could be having a table and have, sitting outside, or this could be a park bench. So that's for the street space. I think otherwise it's housing, businesses, parks, it just also whether not even leaving it open, but just moving things closer together so that when you walk out your front door, there are more things that are closer to you that you don't have to get into a car or get onto a bus in order to experience. So your neighborhood just becomes better. And also, I think it's really critical for all of these reasons, mental health, environment, to think about the traffic, right? Like parking is a battery for car traffic. And Every time we build more parking, we're basically insisting that more cars be in our environment. And we know that those cars cause death. <laughs> they cause they, literally danger. They're noisy, which is a big thing. If you're ever in a place with no cars, one of the first things, like, it's just it's so quiet. And they're noisy. They smell. So there's all these things that come with them like that are just... Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, pollution. So all these negative impacts come along with it. And it, so the parking is just it's one piece of this puzzle, right? But it's like a piece that that I found that no one was really working on. <laughs> and part of how I deal with just anxiety around climate change and all these problems is just having something that I feel like I can work on that I'm not stepping on people's toes and that is really potentially could have an impact on a lot of areas. What about places like Paris or Berlin that have actually very good mass transit? Do they have the same parking requirement? 
Not as much. European cities, it's a little bit different. There are still parking mandates. A lot of times they call them parking standards in places. And there's also kind of shadow parking requirements. So like in England, for example, you don't necessarily, my understanding is you don't, there's not a set number of parking spaces you have to build, but everything has to go before like a panel or everything is discretionary. So they're going to ask you how much parking you're providing, and then you're probably going to have to build some. Paris famously is talking about removing a bunch of parking from the streets. And I'm not sure, it's a little hard to tell with the other countries, their legal, like when you're looking up to confirm this, we have this whole map of cities, thousands of American cities that we've looked at. And American zoning code all kind of looks the same. And when you're looking at another country, it can be hard. I don't think in Paris, they require parking. I'm not sure about Berlin. A lot of European countries in the years ago looked at this in a different way. They reduced their parking mandates and they really worked to like hide the parking underground or around city centers. Uh, Last thing I'll say on this is in general, cities that were built and largely before the cars came along tend to obviously have better transit usually and also just do better as far as how they deal with parking, at least in their closer in areas, because the environment was already just less accommodating to car traffic. In the United States, suburbanization was chosen at the end of World War II because shared facilities were considered by Joseph McCarthy and the Un-American Activities Committee. And McCarthy used to be in charge of the housing committee. It was considered communistic to share anything. So they built sprawling suburban developments like Levittown, where everyone was by law having to get a GE, their own washer, fire, and so on, and they had a driveway and so on. And of course, they had a car because it was considered, and it was widely said, in the words of the head of General Motors, what's good for General Motors is good for the nation of America. Of course, that's changed men and women both work in the suburbs and so that the mass transit absence is a tragedy. But there's so much constructed that way that Walmart and Stop and Shop and Home Depot, they're all outside the city, even outside of the small cities in rural areas. And so people would have to have a car to go shopping. Yeah, I think, and I didn't know that about the McCarthy hosting the housing committee there. <laughs> I'm familiar with the House on American Activities Committee, but I didn't know that. Rosalind Baxendall, in a book called Picture Windows about the American suburbs and how they were built, Rosalind Baxendall and Liz Ewan wrote, have a whole chapter on that, how shared facilities were communistic, and so they decided not to invest the cities in the suburbs where, of course, a car was required, and so was a wife at home not working, and so on. One of the great ironies here is that the way we deal with parking in the United States is probably one of the most socialist things we do. It's really, like, I, I'm a pretty liberal person, and but there's this parking is not something that, like, it's not, a, 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 we treat it like it's the foremost human need in, the, in a lot of places. And you can see the discourse, as they said, the discourse, like this comes up where even very well-meaning progressive people, as soon as you challenge the idea that they can park for free or that that should be like the the number one thing, it really, it the, 
they will take a position that that is is to me very just very strange and very contradictory. Like we in a lot of places, right? There are questions absolutely around how people with disabilities and people who are elderly should be able can get around and what impacts how we build our cities and our future policies have. But it's ironic. It, it, one of the things that always puzzles me is there's more emphasis on whether someone can drive, whether a person who has access to a van with a wheelchair space in it can park it, but then you rarely hear the concern of whether they can use the bathroom in the building that they're driving to, right? And so we really look at things, this one issue, and it's a proxy for a lot of things. I think that really what it is that people figured people figured out that they could that, that because everyone wants because everyone wants this parking, it's a way that you can you can halt any project that you don't want or you can push back on a policy you don't want if you can tie it to this issue it's and so it's really a cynical proxy usually i think for people that who are already privileged and in power i think it must be because in the in manhattan where i happen to live really the whole idea that what's good for general motors is good for america is completely wrong and I think the car has taken over a whole lot of uses so that uh, Emily Gindelsberger in her book on the clock talks about working at Walmart where they have deliberately large parking lots because people have to live in their car because at Walmart salaries are so low they can't afford a home. And so that there is this parking lot as life offer which i hadn't heard of before i read that what do you have you know what's your take on this that's tragic there's a whole movie right rome i haven't actually seen it but that whole movie about people who are increasingly living in vehicles moving around walmart famously is a place where people can at least get some safe rest this is happening not just at walmart right in cities and universities Students, there's tons of students who can't find housing who live in cars. And it's something we're very aware of because one of the few times that residents seem to want to support things, like there's this parking management is something we promote. It says, hey, instead of requiring everyone to build a bunch of parking, the city should mind its own business and just manage the parking that it has, right? Like with if there's too many people who want to drive downtown, that's what parking meters are for, right? You can you and then you can reinvest that money in improving walkability or transit. But one of the few places when residents usually people usually don't want to have any sort of permit or meters, except one time where they really do like it is if they have a lot of people who are living in the cars on their streets and then they want to institute a permit program in order just to keep people out of the neighborhood. So so it's it can be used as an exclusionary tactic, and I think this all ties together. Though, like, why are why is housing expensive in these places? It's because partly, at least, we don't allow housing to be built <laughs> that <laughs> in, in in large numbers. It's it's a war on apartments, and and it's it's been on for a long time. It's going to take a while to to fix it. But part of what I think our work is, I tell people like these parking mandates, they're not the silver bullet, but it's, you can't grow a garden if you have a bunch of rocks and weeds in it. You got to get some of this stuff out of the way. Otherwise you're not, you're, and that's not going to solve your problem, right? You remove rocks and weeds from a piece of land. You still have to, you have to have good policies that encourage the right kind of growth that you want. You need the transit, you need to allow multiple housing types, but you're never, you can't even get started if you don't first 
remove the barriers to the things you want. And also it's that idea that a parking space costs money just to maintain it. It's not just keeping everything as it is somehow the most cost-effective way of allocating resources, for example. If you repurpose the land, it may well be that you can use it in a more cost-effective way. I mean, it's the most boring lens to look at it through. (laughs) But yeah, it carries some weight, right? Yeah, I think that I think also there's this interesting paradox we have where now we're starting to see, I mentioned most of these reforms have been happening in the last five, six years. And so we're starting to see what happens in cities. The first, some of the first cities in the US that did this, like Buffalo, New York, or Hartford, Connecticut, San Francisco. And then they all have different things, right? In San Francisco, sure, you can build a building with no parking, but it's famously impossible to get them to allow you to build anything there. But in other places, like what we've seen that, that it's good news and bad news, right? Like the good news is that you can tell people pretty confidently that the sky's not going to fall. Things aren't going to change very fast, right? You know, that Walmart is still going to be there. So if you're, if you are car dependent and you have a car, you're still going to be able to go to the places that you currently go to. It doesn't change that fast. It take, building things takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of process. Stars have to align. And so things aren't going to change very quickly. And that's good news from an organizing perspective in a way, because you can really assure people like, this isn't going to overturn the apple cart. Um, But on the other hand, if you're concerned about things like climate change or housing availability and affordability, you want to see it change really fast. (laughs) And so it's, it's not happening. Things aren't happening fast enough. They're still building a lot of parking or things just, they still don't get built because there's other things that have to get done. Um, But I I think, so to some degree, maintaining the existing use. And I think that there is a lot to be said about how we if more efficiently use the existing parking, especially structured parking, right? It's really expensive. It's already there. It's not going away anytime soon. So a big thing we can do is to just make sure that we can ease some of the anxiety and help in the transition by encouraging people to, to use the existing parking supply more efficiently, which then allows for the street space to be turned into transit lanes or bike lanes or other... or restaurants or parklets. Yeah, so there it's not boring I think to think about the land use aspect. <laughs> but I yeah, maybe no, I'm a little weird. <laughs> no, no, more just that I was thinking through the lens of finance because that's how everything's justified or not in the sort of economic system we live in opposed to would this be good for people instead it's oh we can't afford it so screw you kind of thing uh yeah but i was just wondering cuz obviously you mentioned studying politics but being an organizer in how this initially started and how long you've been doing it, like what things maybe you've encountered along the way, either challenges communicating this issue to people or you mentioned some of this stuff being used as a way of excluding people out of a community. But I'm just wondering about, have you met any kind of resistance or challenges from people who, I don't want to know about your parking reforms, for example? (laughs) For sure. It's funny because when I first started, when I read the book, And as I mentioned, I live in Portland and a few years after I lived here, after I read the book, they started building a bunch of apartments on a street called Division Street with no parking. Uh, We'd had rules actually for 10 years before. This is part of the whole, it takes a long time. That actually had been legal in Portland for about 10 years before anyone actually found, put the pieces together to build a building, build an apartment with no parking. And it worked. And so there was like a feeding frenzy and there were a bunch of new buildings coming up and the neighbors really got mad. 
And I started, I had read this book. So I said, hey, I started going to the council, city council and planning commission and saying, there's better ways to deal with this. Like we can, we could, we don't need to add to start making them build parking with housing anymore and, or housing again. And, and people told me like, this is, you don't want to get into this because, because really if you look like cities sometimes publish reports of what the, what people complain about and parking is like a very high level complaint. But I think that what I found was that, yeah, sure, if you go and ask someone with no information whether they think there should be more parking or less parking or whether parking should be cheaper or more expensive, of course they're going to say, 99% of people are going to say, yeah, no, whatever this guy is talking about, less parking, more expensive, he's get them out of here. And that this isn't specific to parking. I think this is a problem with how we communicate about a lot of important issues. You're not giving people the information. So I always, I found like when you told someone, Hey, do you know how much that parking space cost? Do you know where these, how indefensible these parking ratios, these mandates are like how ridiculous they are. Do you know how much space parking space people think about the space of a car, but by the time you add the aisles and the clearance and the ever growing size of American vehicles, a parking space takes up three to 400 square feet. So like that, that's a small apartment. Two of them is certainly an apartment that a lot of people would be happy to live in. And so it's like that, like I, I found actually that yes, there's resistance, but it, in my opinion, in my experience, just the information. And I don't find that people necessarily, they're not going to buy in and become as obsessed with this issue or as passionate about it as me. There's very few people who've gone that far down the path, but it does weaken resistance. And one thing I learned, like the labor aspect of organizing is you meet someone you want to find out where they are on the spectrum, right, of support. And there's some people who are against you from the get-go. And, and you mark them as anti, and you actually just don't fight with them unless you're doing it for fun. People say, how do you convince someone? I'm like, I don't even try that hard because if they're really against it, there's a thousand other people who I haven't talked to yet. So I'm going to go spend my time talking to them. And I found that a lot of people, like, it doesn't completely change their mind, but it's soft. It. And that's the difference, I think, between whether they're going to complain or not. So really, you're just trying to almost neutralize the opposition a little bit in a pe very peaceful way by, by convincing them that like they, there's a lot of things we deal with where we're not happy about it. No one wants to do chores, or but we recognize that it's important or that we have to do it. And I think that's we can get a lot of people on this issue and similar issues of national importance, social importance to recognize that, yeah, I know that this is, the alternative is worse. And so I'm not gonna, I'm gonna begrudgingly go along. And I think that's a that's where I aim. Act, activate and excite a small core of people who do agree with me. And then for the rest, just try to get enough information out there that people are, they're just less likely to oppose it strongly. <laughs> In New York, they tried for a while to have big, parking lots outside the city and regular buses. But because of the corruption of U.S. capitalism and in general, and New York in particular, there were so many car theft rings in operation there that too many people's cars were stolen. So they abandoned the whole idea instead of having good mass transit outside the city. And you wonder, 
I wonder if this would change if they took away the covering, they covered all the trolley lines in rural areas so that people had to have a car as part of the American dominance of General Motors. I wonder if they took away the tar and asphalt that are covering those tracks and reinvigorated the trolley lines that ran between all these tiny little rural towns, if that would make a difference in the whole parking space constraint. Do you think it would? I think transit absolutely is. It's it's critical. If we're gonna serve, if we're gonna absent some sort of magic, I suppose there's a small fractional percentage chance that everything works out. <laughs> but absent that, um, I think that transit increasing transit access is so obviously a key. It's far more equitable, right? If you think just to think about the population who can drive, right? Everyone under 16 years old in this country is dependent on someone else to drive them, right? Like in many, and an increasingly number of people over 65, 70 years old, they may legally be able to drive, but it's, it, they may not want to, or it may not be the or best. Or they may have night blindness and not be able to drive at night. So right. Or they do drive at night because they have to, and then disaster occurs for many people. The, we gloss over this the num, the sheer number of just that's a whole right the, the impact of automobile violence, and it's completely to, when we look at how we deal with guns, and we look at in the United States, and look at how incomprehensible our reaction to that is, and when you look at how we we react to the damage caused by cars, it's worse. It's because it's so internalized that it's okay. People will tell you about their car crashes and their injuries, and they will not connect like the underlying cause that there's not other alternatives. So it's, it's that's very frustrating. But but I think yeah, the transit is really important. I when you talked about these park and rides, it's interesting to me because there is a lot of money. I, this is something I had on my list to talk about. Is there is this huge complex of building, right? We know like how we do transit in the United States. Transit agencies are like, they. it's similar to American universities, right? It's all about building things. It's not about teaching anymore. It's about how many how many sports complexes you can build and how many dorms you can build. And of course we do need dorms, but it's, it's more about their capital projects because everyone knows the capital projects, they make a lot of money and there's a lot of consultant money and people, they move up ladders when they deliver these big projects. And so there is this like, Every time we build a train station or a new transit line, we put it somewhere on the outskirts and then we build a bunch of parking around it. And, and not only costs so much, but then everyone who wants to use the transit still needs a car to access transit. And so it's, it, just build housing at the transit and make buses go to the transit center. And I think that you can definitely, I, th I think that we can. I'm optimistic that if we do, it's hard, but I think some places are going to get it right. And hopefully other places will follow where like, you you have to stop. You have to just have to stop catering to the to, to or making cars the primary, the primary thing. And people will tell you like, oh, your plans don't work. Your plan would be great if we had perfect transit. And I like to just point out, you can't get transit if you're to the point where we started. You know who pays? If you have to pay for a parking space in your apartment already, you might as well buy a car because you're already paying for a place to park it. And if you have a car, are you going to take the bus? Probably not. Because your car is more convenient. So we really have to like attack this at the core and start to erode that dependency and provide other options. And I think 
I have to hope and believe that it's going to work because I don't know what the alternative yeah. is. One of the things that makes it not work, because you can see it in the U.S. where they're trying to push electric cars to stop pollution rather than mass transit to stop pollution, which is much more sensible and much less costly. But it's capitalism, the same thing that causes the gun irrationality. The gun lobby persuades not only people, but Congress people or our Congress people have five lobbyists to every congressperson that the auto industry has so dominated both consciousness and also public works that it's harder to get the funding and you don't have people, you don't have lobbies pushing for mass transit. You go to a place like France, I am impressed by not only the extent of mass transit, but that if you want to go to the country, they have auto cars where you drive your car onto a train and then you use your car, but you don't use your car going all the way there. Or they have these big car rental centers at at rural places. So you're not wedded to the car. But the U.S., which is the most capitalistic, also has the most, has blotted out public transit as a sensible option in favor of your own individual automobile without consciousness of the cost socially and personally of those automobiles and the parking spaces needed for them. So it's an ideological shift on the community needs versus the individual needs and on the allocation of resources towards saving life in the community. It's really an ideological shift, particularly here, I think. Absolutely. It's very true. When you talk like these public works, I think it's worth emphasizing this. There's a big there's a lot of there's a lot more awareness around on what the not only the damage that freeway development has done as far as dividing cities and health impacts, but also just thinking that it's not over. Right. We're still widening freeways and we're still building freeways. And it is part of this vicious cycle. There's there's an example here in Portland that I think is wild. We had a couple projects where we built a convention center and then in order for them to build a convention center, the hotel, a convention center hotel, they required the, for the deal to go through, the hotelier required the city to put a package together to build a parking garage for them. And this is right next to two transit, like the max line that goes, our, our light rail that goes directly to the airport. So they build this parking structure. It costs $60,000 a stall to build it. And then the airport is just, our airport just finished a like quarter of a billion dollar project. And once again, we have in Portland, we have light rail that goes directly to the airport terminal, but they built this brand new 2000 car parking garage that also that I, incidentally, that project includes a pedestrian tunnel to the terminal that is that costs about $13 million. We just built a, a pedestrian bicycle bridge over the freeway in Portland that costs $13 million. And they spent the same amount on a tunnel to so people could walk to the rental car facility. And so, the, but the real thing here where I think this all ties together is he built this parking garage for pe- people coming from the airport down by the convention center. And then you build 2,000 more parking spaces. And then, oh, lo and behold, there's a project in our transportation system plan that they wanted to get funded with this bin as part of a big bond measure that was supposed, it was $100 million in a bond measure that was supposed to be building more light rail. But it was a flyover for the roadway to go over the light rail tracks. 
by the airport. And the justification, they said, this is going to improve transit service because, you know, there's going to be too much traffic. And it's, you just put 2,000 more cars at the end of this road. So clearly you need to widen the road now. And I think that there's a set of inevitability. It's like dominoes get knocked over where they were set up where these big projects that cost billions of dollars, they look like they have to happen. And it's, you set it up. So what has to happen? And maybe if we just stop (laughs) and take a breath and try something else for a little while and revisit it, maybe we don't have to do that. (laughs) But it's slowing down that train, that inertia is really, it's, and once again, there's so many people getting paid. So many bribes here. Yeah, or not even bribes, but even just, you know, imagine if you're building a $200 million parking garage. Imagine the, I can't even imagine the trips you must get taken on or just the the lunch. There's so much, it's like a, for a business person or a consultant, and I'm not even, this is the, we're all in this together. That's career advancement. You you landed these contracts. Now you're probably going to go leave public service and go work for that company later on. Like, I mean, it's natural people, I think, want to do it, but it's a structural thing we're trying to change. And it takes, it's going to take all of us, right? (laughs) Yeah, it it sounds like you're trying to change capitalist corruption and get people to think socially. And that's an ideological, political change. It might be easier in a place like France that has a huge socialist presence, or even in Germany, but in the United States, it's very difficult. One of the things that I've been looking at in terms of public transportation has been like, for example, Japan is known for having one of the world-class transit systems. And there, one city in particular, Kyoto, has a lot less subways and relies a lot more on buses just because it's an old town, old city that was that did not make it for various engineering reasons. But there's been a lot of issues with the bus system there. And I believe since the beginning of the pandemic, two out of the five companies running the buses have gone under because they haven't been able to find drivers and mechanics. And that is one of the biggest things that's also facing similar issues worldwide, but also in the United States, is finding drivers as well as mechanics. I think even in terms of cars, right? You know, we're looking at a mechanic shortage of over 600,000 mechanics by the 2030 or something like that. I think we focus so much on, you know, infrastructure issues Absolutely. But one of the major issues that I think is preventing the expansion of public transport is the lack of public regard for public transport and kind of labor jobs like mechanics. Yeah. So it's a value system and some kind of regard for people that do those jobs is important and not looked down upon and that people actually want to do that work as well. What are the things that would incentivize mass transit? One is just that you had an equivalent thing for the cost of living crisis that Britain certainly is going through at the minute, which is that all the energy prices have jacked up and the food prices have jacked up. And you can imagine a situation where if the gas prices actually just went through the roof, suddenly mass transit would be an imperative, right? You would be forced to take it. But again, that's a problem, I guess. It's just when I think about 
getting around in London, for example, it's relatively straightforward. There are a lot of buses, there's the underground, there's overground trains. It's obviously it's not Tokyo levels, but it's it's good enough. My first thought isn't, oh, I wish I was in a car because being on the road in London is not always great. But you also have the flip side, which is that you definitely get crazies on public transport. You get fights where you get drunks and you don't get that in your car. But you, as Tony was saying, you do get mass death in a car <laughs> in a way that... People fight over parking spots and shoot each other in New York all the time. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. There's a new book that came out called Pay Paradise by this guy. He's from New York, Henry Grabar. And and he, he one of his big anecdotes is he has a Google alert for parking lot killing or parking lot mur- parking murder and it happens people do all the time i think to, also to your point and this ties in i think pretty well with obviously the theme of your show we're basically making transit operators into the, they have much more of a social responsibility in a lot of our cities because the transit is a place of last refuge for a lot of people especially during extreme weather events or other issues right people can at least find some shelter on buses and trains, but we're not adding additional social services. So I think a lot of that burnout for the transit operators is not only the pay, but just the fact that they have to deal with something that's not their job, right? They're trying to pilot a very big machine and then they have to deal with the disruption, the mental health breakdowns of their passengers and it's the antisocial behavior. It's really, it's right. it can be depressing. I- the last bus driver strike that I was watching some of the bus drivers being interviewed. And it reminded me to a certain degree of the working condition of teachers, right? Because the working condition of those kinds of like public facing jobs have a lot of similarities. But one of the major issues with a lot of bus drivers is they're like, yeah, like we're having to work in adult diapers because we don't get bathroom breaks. And and all these things compound ultimately to make those jobs really undesirable for a lot of people. And if the jobs are undesirable, then if the labor isn't there, then it's not going to allow for the expansion. It's not just the wealthy and taxes. There is this public perception that these are low prestige jobs. Yeah, and there's often the salary to match. The aspect of the prestige of these types of jobs improving, I think the average person can do somewhat more to to push back on them being low prestige. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope in the, I don't know if you're familiar with, there's a Facebook group, a very large Facebook group called the Num Tots, New Urbanist Memes for Transit-Oriented Teens. There is a subculture among people younger than me where, because there is some documented, and we'll see if it persists, some documented pushback to car-dependent lifestyle among younger people. And there is this whole subculture of transit's cool. We love the transit. We love the bus driver. And maybe hopefully the next generation will, will, if we support them enough, can help bail us out a bit in like in changing how we think about this <laughs> to a degree <laughs> and hopefully su- supporting them. And really, uh, one of the things I try and do in with Parking Reform now, work is we have professional resources and we do research, but also I'm just from my community and labor organizing aspect, it's about creating these connections and helping to, I think, inside outside game, connecting activists and practitioners and building a community and just like 
I'm just into the the community aspect of it so much and just letting people know and building that energy. And I think there's a lot, I get amazing internship applications from younger people that are just like, they're writing in saying, man, I looked at your website and this issue is really important to me. And I see how it ties into climate and I see how it ties into housing. So it gives me a lot of hope when I look at the people who come to this type of issue or involved in transit and transportation advocacy because I think it is really I think there's hope there's something there and and hopefully we can sustain it and grow it yeah I think collective is very important but I also think that part of this mental health issue which is certainly an issue on mass transit is that it probably it's the same in England it certainly looks like it from this point of view from an America point of view is that the society is breaking down the empire is failing. They're not admitting it, but the society is breaking down and people are breaking down because they don't have the sense of community where they live or anywhere else. I think part of that failure, though, is just that there's no vision, right? There's no ideas of a better way of doing things. Instead, it's just this sort of managed decline. (laughs) It could be worse. That's the best thing our politicians have to sell us, right? Well, we're doing our best at this whole thing that's falling apart. And I think that, I think, Tony, you're right, that part of it is just, is just having fresh minds on it who are like, who do see the importance of these issues. And And I guess that leads to maybe a final question, given that we're just about to hit the hour, is like, how do people get involved? Because the anarchic part of my brain is, oh, everyone should start stealing cars or occupy parking spaces or build on a parking space, claim it as your own house (laughs) because you paid for it in some manner. But I assume that's not very productive. How do people get involved? There is demonstration activity. I think that one of the things I found in when I was working on this in Portland, when, you know, about six, seven years ago, I was interested in the parking and transportation issue. And I got involved also then tied in with what they call like the Yimby, like the pro housing movement that what is the most effective or successful version of that right now is what you might call Yimbies. Not everyone identifies with that term, but, and, and what I found was that because parking in, interacts with all these issues, the climate issue and the housing issue and the transportation issue, it was a great thing to organize and bring people together around. The bicycle advocacy and the pedestrian advocacy community were easy to bring on board in trying to legalize fourplexes in Portland and allow more apartments to be built. So like that was a, it was a cross-pollination and vice versa. The people who were most interested in land use learned about the transportation. And I've spoken to several Sunrise Movement groups about this issue and how it ties into the fossil fuel industry and how it ties into the road building. And so I think that one key is Find what you actually want to work on that is going to make things better, right? Whatever that is. And just be aware, what I hope people are aware of is that parking probably is a piece of the problem for you, maybe a small one. And so you don't need to get fully into it. We're here to be the ones who are deep in it. But when acting as a resource and a community so that you can help to not only effectively deal with that problem and what you work on, maybe you build houses. And you can't, they're making you build more than 
you want, or you're advocating for bus lanes and you need help getting people to allow the parking to be removed from the street so the transit runs better. That's all, it's a tiny piece of your work. And, and so we're trying to fill that, fill those gaps and create a more holistic view. So I think, I think people should get involved by just doing what they're passionate about, but recognize that this is probably a piece and just get on our mailing list. Or if there, if it's a problem, get in touch so that we can help you be more effective. That's what the Parking Reform Network is really for, is to accelerate and help to get slightly better outcomes. Because I think I have to be optimistic in my life. I'm aware of all the problems, but a lot of this is just for my own well-being, feeling like we're moving in a direction I do, that we discount the impact of marginal of marginal successes, even a couple extra apartment buildings. Like if you build a couple more apartment or apartment in every building over time that does add up and the sooner we get started on you know just marginal and incremental improvements with the aim of the other key i think here is for long-term change every time you build a place for someone to live in a place that they don't need to drive that creates more and i hate to say more of a market right for that type of lifestyle and it creates more of a community for those people there's less isolation and i do think those that that will have a multiplicative effect it feeds on itself in order to bring us back together and have the kind of community and lifestyles we need to to combat obviously the system feeds on isolation right breaking people up putting them in their own cars putting them far away from each other that's how you, how larger forces beat popular movements and we have to break that down i think to so too, make progress i also think that both the uk and the us now unlike France, does not have a place to go with your anger at everything that ties it all together under a socialistic change like they do with Mélenchon in France. And so that each little issue doesn't see its reverberations and embracing of a total issue. And you really do need that, a movement or a party. So there isn't that unifying force where we could all see each other. And so, of course, we should celebrate whatever we can do, but also hope for a union of all of us that we could see that we're all together on this and that there are connections everywhere. Yeah. And I I think I was going to bring this up a little earlier, but one thing is even right this is an issue that even does have appeal to people who are capitalists, right? There's there, there's one nice thing about this issue is that it there is an appeal for people across the aisle too. And whether you're going to agree on other issues with them, the idea that the government should be knows how much parking you need for your business is something that that is not appealing to conservatives and libertarians either. And so it, it creates a little bit of common ground and some space maybe to interact with people who you might not always be on the same page on. But this is this is one one place where we've got it backwards. And I think we can really like very backwards. And I hope that we can create a little more community there too. Yeah. Is there anything, Ikoi or Harriet, that you wanted to ask? Or Tony, do you feel like we've maybe missed anything? There's one more aspect, which is that Mass transit helps people to connect and be less lonely. And both the UK and the US are very lonely places. But going places together, the camaraderie of just being together in the space helps with loneliness. Yeah, it's tricky though, isn't it? I remember reading somewhere and also very much feeling it as well, that this idea of that you could be 
you're in London, you're in the underground. You can be having your face in someone's armpit, a super packed train. <laughs> so you can be physically very close to people, but you don't know them. And you can feel it can amplify a sense of isolation and loneliness, actually being surrounded by people. So it's, it's a very then different experience at night on the tube, particularly on Friday or Saturday. Because everyone's pissed and generally speaking, everyone tends to be a bit more chatty and up for things. So I thought, I think, on one hand, I do think you're right, Harriet, that there's a sort of a bonding experience that can happen on mass transit. Yeah. But it's, it depends. Like, definitely everyone looks fucking miserable on a Monday morning, <laughs> whereas Friday, Saturday night, it's a, different, it's a different thing. But it is true that there is that sort of shared collective misery and a shared collective happiness. <laughs> You're not as able to completely just other, to put people in another box, right? When you're on the freeway and someone's in another box, literally another box from, you don't, you're disconnected, whether you know them or not, you're disconnected from much of their, any of their, any of how they're being. It might not be comfortable to be on the bus with someone who's going through a crisis or who's being loud, but I do think you're exposed to humanity and that is like, that's important for remaining, remaining human and being a social person is to be around that. And, you, and also there are moments I've traveled on a subway since I was a little kid. And there's this sweetness and you can start talking to someone who you never would have talked to in your life. You sit next to them and you see something, you say, whoa, look at that or whatever. There's a bond of possibility when you're together, which there isn't when you're in your own little box in your car. I think like my kid, like I mentioned, I don't have a, I don't have a car. I have two children. One's almost 17. One's almost 13. And since we don't have a car, they are very dependent on getting themselves places as much as possible. And so they both ride transit and ride their bikes. But I, th I think, and we have for their whole lives and they're, we're aware of the problems that can happen, right? There are dangers out there in the world, mostly cars. Like <laughs> there are people who could be dangerous. And, and, but I think it leads to kids that are more resilient and healthy and more, they're more independent and they aren't afraid of people. Like my kids aren't afraid of strangers, right? And they're aware of strangers, but they're not, they don't, they're not afraid in the same way I see other people's children who are driven around or there's this idea that how bad, I think that's a lot of how we perceive how bad the, the homeless problem is in cities and things is that we're not actually, and it's bad, but but a lot of people have this idea that it's dangerous, yeah. always dangerous. And it's no, most of the time it's like, I was on the train with my daughter and there was a person acting very erratically, walking around and cussing and stomping and coming back to their things and rifling through. My daughter seemed like pretty concerned. And I was preparing myself to act in case there was a problem, but nothing happened. And then if we, as we got off the bus, the guy came up to me and got in my face for a second. And he was like, I really like that vest you're wearing. <laughs> it was just what you think is going to happen. It doesn't always happen. And if and it, you can really... Does it does give you a better, I think, perspective on just the humanity of the people around you and the things that they're going through? Yeah. When I was very little and went to my dance classes, I remember there was a guy trying to press his body against me, and a woman standing behind me grabbed his hand and screamed in the car, and the man weaseled away through the crowd, and I felt so protected. Because there is that in the subway, too. The other people are a source of protection. I think that is part of the crisis when we get in, when you get into a, a downward spiral of transit usage. You end up where 
the only people on the transit are the people who have no other choice. And then, or, and it can lead to, when we talked about the pressure on the drivers that like, if there's not that many people on the train or on the bus, then, you know, you don't have a community that can stand up and in a peaceful way, help to counteract. Obviously there's examples of things going in the other direction, but yeah. 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 That's a good point. All right. We'll have to end it there. But yeah, that was really great. And uh, Thank yeah, super, you very much. Yeah, super grateful for your time, Tony, and uh, chatting with us. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, J. Daniel Richer, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show interpersonal update on wbai and in the wbai archives 